Hey, legend. Thanks for joining me on another episode. The man on deck today is Kevin Zolman. He is a game theorist, and he's also a professor of philosophy at Carnegie Mellon University. I've heard a lot about game theory. I've explored it a fair bit. I've tried to understand it, and I found it way overcomplicated, very difficult to apply in my own life, and really just felt like I was reading a lot of things that made it more and more complicated. The more I learned, the harder it seemed to actually implement and actually make an impact on my life. But people kept talking about it. It keeps coming up in conversation. And that was until I met Kevin. And in this episode, this is for you. If you want to get a really clear understanding of what game theory is and how to implement it in your life to improve your relationships, not just professionally, but also personally. We go through a bunch of you know little tactics that you can use and examples of game theory that you can use in your own life that will actually make a difference and you can actually go and implement. So it's not too long. The episode's just a little bit over an hour, but it's packed, jam-packed. I learned more about game theory and actually when implemented things in my life after this than I had of probably 20, 30 hours of trying to learn about it, listen to different podcasts, read different books. So check this out. He's an amazing man. I'll see you on the other side. What's up, Kevin? Pleasure to have you here in the midst of, uh, you're finishing the semester, semester in the midst of a semester? In the middle, right in the middle. Yeah. Okay. Smack that in the middle. (laughs) Cool. Well, man, thanks for joining us in the middle of your busy schedule. And I'd love to jump in, give a bit of context for the audience. I've been following you for quite a while. What are you well known for? You've written a really great book, but what are you well known for in in this sphere? So I'm a, a philosophy professor, but who works in game theory. So I'm well known for my work in game theory, both as it's applied in economics, which is sort of what a lot of people know, but also as it's applied in biology to animals and plants and other things like that. Mm-hmm. My research sort of spans both disciplines and works on a number of different topics, including how people learn in groups, how uh, animals come to communicate with one another, how norms of fairness can emerge in culture and a variety of other topics like that. Wow, fun. And we were talking before we started and I was explaining the kind of the more I've gotten into it, the more confused I seem to be <laughs> about this very important and, you know, seemingly really, really relevant topic to our lives. Would you mind doing a quick broad brushstroke of like, what is game theory in your words? Absolutely. So game theory is the science of strategic thinking. And unpack that a little bit. What I mean by strategic thinking is any situation where you're interacting with another person and where your interests are intertwined in some way. So I care about what you do and you care about what I do because it influences me in some way and I influence you in some way is a strategic situation. And so game theory attempts to be a theory that helps us to understand strategic situations like that. At base, it's a mathematical theory, but of course, ideally, one can sort of extract the non-mathematical parts of it, uh, the general lessons, and communicate them beyond that. But as you said, if you want to get way into it, there's there's a whole lot of sometimes very complex, sometimes not so bad, mathematics behind, behind the theory. Wow. And how did you first come across it, and when did you get hooked? I got hooked uh, from a kind of sideways way. I was a philosophy major in as an undergraduate in college, mostly interested in logic and other sorts of kind of 
mathematic-ish things going on in philosophy. But I was also playing poker at the time, and I really got interested in thinking about what math can tell you about how to play poker better. And so I started writing, you know, little computer programs to try and figure out how to be a better poker player. I was not a good one, and <laughs> <laughs> the, the computer programs helped a little tiny bit. Um, but a- as I was talking to one of my professors about about you know what I was doing, I was sort of reinventing some piece, some little tiny pieces of game theory. And he said, "Hey, you know, there's this whole area, game theory, that you should learn about, and also it's an area that's relevant to philosophy and science and a lot of the other things that you're interested in." And his name was Bruce Gleamore, and and he got me interested in this area, and and that just opened, you know, that that just opened all the doors to me. I got super excited by it. I read a book by a professor who eventually became my PhD supervisor, Brian Skirms, wow. and you know, decided I wanted to go work with him for my PhD and, and, and the rest is history. So it really was poker that got me in, but then discovering that that was a little tiny corner of what was this huge world uh, just just grabbed me. Mm. How, can you paint the picture of what the poker scene was like? Was this like in dorm rooms or would you like go to illegal spots or were you out at casinos like trying to yeah so this was before the big poker boom that happened in the early 2000s so this was just before it so it was sort of the stage was being set um i started playing uh just with friends in in my living room in in an apartment you know for small stakes and then there was a casino nearby uh when i turned 21 i started going to that it was a native american casino in kansas which is where i grew up back then uh uh, texas hold'em was sort of weird nobody knew what it was and so seven card stud was the game that everybody was playing so that's where I started playing but then the poker boom happened and everybody got excited and so you know then I I kept playing in casinos a little bit online and when I moved to California, there was a very convenient casino, so I used to play regularly there. And then I also had a game with other game theorists. Every week, we would get together and play poker, oh, and uh, that was an intense game. There were <laughs> some very good poker players and very good game theorists there. But it was a great opportunity to think about, you know, we, we, we would stop in the middle and, like, write equations on the blackboard sometimes <laughs> to talk through the game theory of the hands, which was, uh, you know, fun in a very nerdy way. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's so yeah. epic. Yeah, I can really see the like, the difference between the two there. Do you mind me asking, like, what was the... I'm not an experienced poker player by any means. One of my friends used to play professionally. He lived in Vegas mm. um, for, I can't remember, like 18 months. Like, literally, yeah, just, yeah. like, rotate, didn't sleep. Like, just Red Bulls oh. and, like, slept during the day. It was just like... <laughs> like, what was your... Um, yeah, what was your, your biggest win and your biggest loss? What did you keep Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I definitely remember a very big loss um, that was, you know, one of the things that, that poker teaches you is, you know, you can make the right plays and still lose because it's a game that involves randomness. Mm-hmm. And and this is something game theory also emphasizes is that, you know, there's a just... Dis- it's very important to think about a decision from from the point of view of when you're making the decision. So I, I remember the biggest loss, at least the one that stands out in my in my head when I was a graduate student, was like a five or six hundred dollar loss, uh, which you know, I mean, it was a lot to me at the time when I was yeah. making How like you? you know, uh, uh, probably probably twenty four or twenty five something Rough. like that. Rough. But you know, in graduate school, you're making like. fifteen thousand dollars a year trying to make yeah. it in Southern California, so that was a lot of money to me, and. And it was one of those things where, you know, at the moment of making the decision, I had the winning hand. I was making the right decision. 
Uh, but, you know, all the money went into the pot and then the wrong card came out and my opponent won the hand. And, uh, you know, it was frustrating. Of course, you never want to have that happen. But also, you know, you have to, I think one of the things that, you know, game theory and poker both teach you is very important is not to do what the poker players call results-based thinking. So mm-hmm. it's to sit down and say, don't think about whether you made the right or wrong decision based on how it turns out. Think about whether you made the right or wrong decision at the moment you made the decision. It's so easy to look back and regret things you did on the basis of what you now know. But of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? You know, there's a reason we say that. It's And so you always want to put yourself back in the position uh, to make that decision. One of the things I like about like the online poker playing strategy community, especially at that time, if you posted a hand that you wanted other people's advice on, you they literally would not let you post any information past where you were making your decision. So you would like, you know, there were these four online forums, you know, back in the early 2000s, and and you would post the hand, but you had to stop and say, okay, is this the right decision, yes or no? I won't tell you how the hand turns out, because they want to be in the same mind space that you were in at this at the time. And I think that that's such a super smart way to think about decision making. Wow. Sorry, it was a bit of a tangent. Biggest That's win, right. you know, I don't know. I don't remember my biggest wins anymore. I only remember the losses. <laughs> I, maybe that just says something about who I am as a person. <laughs> well, that's crazy. And then once you, I mean, it must have felt pretty good, this this professor that you were, I mean, you were reading his book. You, you, you know, obviously loved it. And then he became your PhD advisor or what was the word you used? Yeah, PhD advisor, supervisor. Right, for, right. Yeah. How had that feel? That must be. Oh, that real. was great. I mean, I was I was so very lucky. I was coming out of you know a, a very good, but not like you know preeminent program at Kansas State University. It was you know stronger than I think the reputation of the university, but still you know it's not Harvard or Stanford or something like that. And uh, I was applying to this brand new department, Department of Logic and Philosophy of Science at UC Irvine. And uh, they let me in, and I was super excited because I really, really loved Brian Skirm's work. I was really excited at the prospect of working with him. He was one of very few people working on game theory and philosophy. So mm-hmm. I was over the moon about that, and uh, and I had a great experience. He was a wonderful advisor. Really, that balance between you know encouraging you, but also not telling you what to do. You know, pointing you in the right direction, but letting you grow for yourself. And 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 I have uh, nothing but good things to say about my whole whole experience there that's incredible man that's incredible what a good step how did these two things overlap game theory like philosophy and then there's science mixed in like yeah a little bit it's a very weird thing you know philosophy especially a lot of people's picture of philosophy is we sit around and wonder whether we exist or something like that and and some philosophers do that so it's not it's not (laughs) totally wrong but philosophy is a really big field you know once upon a time everything was called philosophy physics and and math and everything and and so some of us sort of like to hold on to that idea that philosophy is really the fundamental questions about everything not not necessarily just you know sitting around wondering if we exist and so game theory is interesting and fundamental because it's this fundamental theory that gets applied in tons of different scientific fields so it shows up in biology it shows up in economics it shows up in computer science and political science um and it's it's relevant to everyday life it's something that matters to playing poker it matters to making decisions with one's family it matters to to deciding how to run your business and so it's one of these theories that sort of shows up everywhere and so this idea of thinking about you know game theory is a kind of fundamental way of thinking about the world that applies to almost all 
the natural world. And so it, in that way, I think it's very philosophical, even though it doesn't sort of meet what you sort of think of as philosophy when you first hear the word. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, it makes me, it's really cool hearing your story because you've got this sort of like research-based, you know, approach to it. And then you're out there living it and practicing it like through yeah. poker and whatever. And it's like, <laughs> that's when it's kind of like, okay, is what I think is true when the rubber hits the road is that actually true yeah yeah yeah, you know? yeah. did you yeah. find any um discrepancies between that there can be i mean one one of the things that game theory uh you know game theory is a tool i always describe it as a tool and so like a tool it can be helpful or harmful if used in the right or the wrong way and so one of the major places where you know you can get things wrong is if you make the wrong assumptions about the situation you're facing it will it will give you radically wrong answers so you know in the early days of game theory 1940s 1950s time period one of the mistakes that a lot of game theorists made is they assumed everything was zero sum that was the that was the math that was easy for them at the time that's how they knew how how to handle and so they 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 tried to do zero sum things everywhere but most things in life aren't zero sum and so they got a lot of things wrong and you know game theory had this bad reputation as being very like militaristic and conflictual and that's true because that's what it was at that time because mm. everybody thought it had to be if i gained somebody else had to lose or if they gained i had to lose and that's just not i mean there are situations like that poker's like that but most situations aren't and so if you use the wrong you know if you describe the situation the wrong way you're going to end up just just getting garbage out and yeah, i think that well. that's that's usually where i i most often find that it makes a mistake is yeah. i see that i i put the wrong things in yeah interesting and could you explain zero sum just oh yeah absolutely so zero sum is this you know win loss kind of thinking you know so the idea is something is zero sum if the only way i can gain is by somebody else losing mm -hmm. and the only way that somebody else can gain is if i lose so that's the kind of idea that like every time there's a gain there's a loss poker is a great example because we all come to the table with our money and nobody's winning any money that wasn't somebody else's right <laughs> and, and, and so as a result if if i win somebody else has to lose and if i lose somebody else must be winning um and and so there are real zero-sum things so I'm, it's not like i'm saying they aren't there mm -hmm. but there are a lot of mistakes too there you know there's a lot of situations that people describe as zero-sum thinking or as zero-sum which really aren't because there are opportunities for two people to work together and succeed together and that's by definition then not zero-sum yeah and from my lens something that i've learned from oh, this guy chris voss it was really great he talks about the difference between a good sale and a bad sale or a mm. good deal and a bad deal is a feeling mm. and so it's mm -hmm. like if i know that someone bought something before me for two thousand dollars and then i go to that you know, have that experience and go buy that product and I get it pitched to me for $3,000, mm -hmm. I'm like, what the hell, this is a ripoff. But yeah. there's so much context there that's missing of why that might have happened. But if I know someone, I think someone before me got it for 4000 and I get it offered for three, yeah. I'm like, I'm going to get the best goddamn negotiation <laughs> on the planet. Yeah, yeah. Could yeah. you explain, like, you know, obviously it's like a spectrum maybe or... Yeah. yeah. I mean, what you're describing there is something that's sometimes called framing effects. Mm. Um, so the idea of a framing effect is we feel very differently about an outcome, whether it feels like it's a win to us or whether mm. it feels like it's a loss to us. And so, you know, one like common thing that you'll oftentimes see in sales, but other other places is an attempt to manipulate people's framing effects. So if you remember like the the old school kind of almost hackneyed now strategy on the TV channels is saying you might pay $40 for this. <laughs> 
this, but you can get it now for 20 is an attempt to manipulate that framing effect. Like you try and make people think 40 is the fair price. And so now yeah. they're getting it for 20. That feels like a win to them mm. rather than a loss. And that's exactly what you described. If you go in thinking I'm going to pay 2000 and then you're asked for three, that feels like a loss. Whereas if you go in thinking you're going to pay four and you pay three, that feels like a win. Mm. And there's a lot of research in an area called behavioral economics that is sort of like related to game theory about these kinds of framing effects. When do they happen? When do they not happen? What can you do in order to try and make them? And they're really, really very meaningful because um, I think that people are influenced by it all the time. Uh, I, I, I have a conjecture uh, right, that that's what's going on right now. Delta just changed its frequent flyer program in a way that caused like a big kerfuffle. They made it much harder. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they did that and I read about it, I said to my wife, I'm like, I'll bet you money that they're going to take back some of those changes. But it's easier to like make people think they want to do a terrible thing and then bring it back. And then that now that bringing it back feels like a win as opposed to just going to where they wanted to. Now, I don't have any exactly. insider information, but <laughs> yeah. that's my conjecture, because I think that that's, you know, sometimes people do that when you have to give bad news. You kind of like, well, here's how bad the news could be, but it's not quite as bad. Mm. Um, and I think that that's all part of the same idea of framing effects to try and make something feel like a victory when it's really not a victory by framing it in a certain way for people. Yeah, definitely. Okay, and then, so we have zero-sum game, and then there's mutually beneficial. If we were to mm. put those two next to each other, those are kind of the... Those are kind of opposites. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so if a situation can be mutually beneficial, then it's definitely not zero-sum. So if there's mm -hmm. any opportunity for a win-win solution of a kind, then it can't be zero-sum, because zero-sum okay. has to be win and loss. Yeah. Okay, got it. And then... Because I'm thinking this similar similar vein of something can be mutually beneficial, kind of like ninety ten, or it can mm -hmm. be fifty fifty. Would you be able to yeah. paint us an example so we can we can see that more? Absolutely. So there are a lot of situations where things can be mutually beneficial, but also unequal in certain ways, mm. um, and and that's I think exactly the most complicated types of situations. So like at one extreme you have zero sum, at another extreme you have just like perfect win win, like. Everybody wins in exactly the same degree. But reality really leaves, lives somewhere in the middle where we can win, but it might be that you win a little bit more than I win. So one of the classic stories that, that game theory tells is, is uh, this, this, this game called Bakker Stravinsky, or the more sort of less politically correct old version of it was Battle of the Sexes. And the idea there was you got, you got a couple who wants to go see either Bach or Stravinsky. Um, both are playing in the same night, and they have to decide which one to go to. Um, now, worst case scenario is that they get in a fight and they stay home. So that's bad for both of them. They don't want to do that. Um, so it's not zero sum because the worst outcome would be bad for both of them. It would be lose-lose. Mm. But they do have to argue, do you go to Bach that one of them wants to go to, or do you go to Stravinsky that the other one wants to go to? And now you have the situation of there's no equitable solution. You either go to one person's favorite or you go to the other person's favorite. So it's not a zero-sum game because you could end up both losing, but it's also a situation that feels conflictual because it's one person can get what they want or the other person can get what they want. And so mm -hmm. there are a lot, I think reality really looks a lot like that. There are opportunities for win-win, but the win-win is not always perfectly symmetric or perfectly equal. Okay, got it. And is that what you would call the prisoner's dilemma? 
No, and the prisoner's dilemma different. it's 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 related in that the prisoner's dilemma is also not zero sum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in game theory terminology, Battle of the Sex is called a coordination game, and prisoner's dilemma is um, it's called a social dilemma. The problem with the prisoner's dilemma is that um, well, let me give you the story first, and then I'll talk about Thank it. You. So the, the the story of the prisoner's dilemma is uh, you got two criminals, they both get arrested, uh, the cops are certain absolutely can convict them of a relatively minor crime, you know, theft or something like that. Um, But the cops suspect that they're guilty of a much more serious crime, something like murder. And so they do the thing that they do on every cop show that you've ever seen. They take the two prisoners, they put them into two different rooms, uh, and they say to each of them, here's the deal. You can either stay silent about the murder, not say anything, or you can confess. If you stay silent, you're going to jail for theft. We've got you dead to rights, no problem. If you confess, we'll let you off on the theft charge, no matter what. Right? So we'll get, that's for good behavior. If you confess and the other dude stays silent, well, then we'll need your testimony against him and you get off scot-free. But if you both confess, well, we don't need your testimony anymore, so you're both going to jail for murder. Right, mm-hmm. so that's the that's the situation, and it, if it feels familiar, it is because it is. It's like Law and Order uses it. You know, every every uh, crime procedural has used some version of the prisoner's dilemma. The thing that makes it a dilemma is that each prisoner can reason as follows: Well, look, if the other guy stays silent and I confess, perfect, right? I get off for theft and I get off for murder. I go scot free. That's that's wonderful. If, if the other guy stays silent, well, then, uh, or sorry, I already said that. If the other guy stays silent, uh, I should confess because I can get off scot-free. Uh, if the other guy confesses, well, I'm still better off confessing because I'm going to jail for murder no matter what. Uh, but at least I could get off for the theft charge. At least I'll get a little bit of time off for the theft charge. So no matter what the other guy does, I do better by confessing. So I confess. But then the other guy reasons the same way, and we both end up going to jail for murder, whereas if we had just kept our trap shut, we would have only gone to jail for theft. So that's mm-hmm. the prisoner's dilemma. And the, and the, the reason that it's sometimes called a dilemma or, uh, uh, or a paradox occasionally is that it looks like by following their self-interest, they both made themselves worse off than they would have been if they didn't follow their self-interest. And what's going on here is that there's a conflict between what's good for the, the pair of them, but what's good for each person individually. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of examples of this. So, you know, people, people talk about, like, pollution as an example for this, right? So, yeah, I, you know, I recognize that maybe I shouldn't drive my car to work because it will cause pollution that will ultimately lead to climate change. Uh, but the benefit to me of driving far outweighs the tiny impact that the that the that my car would have on the environment so i do it and then everyone does it and then we end up with a worse environment or you know uh you know if 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 you go to a restaurant with a bunch of friends and you just pass around the check and say throw in whatever you know you think you owe each person can think well if i if i just shave a, f- a few dollars off nobody'll notice and then if everybody does it all of a sudden you're super short right so there are lots and lots and lots of circumstances where like what's in the interest of the private individual leads the group to do something that's bad for the group as a whole and the prisoner's dilemma is like a cute little story that really illustrates this I think a very common phenomena where self-interest leads everybody to do something that ends up making everybody worse off. Yeah, man, this, this is so wild because I've been thinking a lot as I get older of just like kind of the way I see, saw the world when I was younger versus how I see it today. 
is exactly I'm like wow everyone is just really operating from their self interest mm-hmm. and so it it pushes me towards being like well I'm actually losing by thinking and caring more about the whole mm-hmm. and ultimately I'm going to end up in a shit position so I'd better say fuck it and just take care of myself <laughs> yeah. you know it, it just, and it's like it, when everyone seems like that's the conclusion that everyone would reach Exactly. And that's exactly what's the problem of social dilemmas. And so mm-hmm. one huge area of research that, that game theorists focus on is what can we do to change that situation? Mm-hmm. It's not enough to go to people and like wag your finger at them and say you ought not be selfish because exactly what you're saying, the person says, wait, what? But if I am, if, if I by myself act in a non-selfish way, I'll end up being worse off. And that's, you know, the prisoner's story is like that. Look, the prisoner says, wait, if I, if I just stay silent, then I end up going to jail for theft at least and potentially for everything. So why should I not follow my own self-interest? And so what game theory has tried to do is think about how do you take a social dilemma and do something to change it, to make it so that self-interest and what's good for the group all point in the same direction. And there are lots of different solutions that have been suggested. People have done historical research to look at various ways that this problem has been solved. Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics uh, 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 several years ago, is famous for like digging through history, trying to find these and find different ways that they were solved. Uh, and so there's a lot of you know mathematical, historical, cultural research that's been done to try and figure out how we can solve these problems so that people can put them to use when they come across them. Like trivial things like when you're going out to to dinner with friends but also big things like trying to figure out how to you know solve global crises like like uh war and and uh uh, climate climate change and and all of these different problems Mm. okay we're gonna go hard left here i'm gonna try and bring something in that i've been thinking about sure no problem (laughs) so would you mind just picking this up i'm gonna throw it throw an idea and hopefully you can pick it up and go somewhere ancient greece okay back in the day you had the giant pot and once uh-huh. a year you could put if you know once a year everyone put at least six thousand pieces of broken pottery with someone's name on it they would exile them okay and it seems like that really helped to hold up a very strong i guess this idea that they had about democracy coming mm-hmm. you know coming into fruition and by having these very strict rules it was like nobody was able to rise above and be a tyrant. Could you explain a little bit, maybe from a game theorist perspective on that and how they maintained this idea that has has come to fruition thousands of years later and remain? Yeah, and this is an idea that that looks like it was pretty central to the way humans evolved to cooperate around the globe. So there's lots of evidence of variations on this kind of theme. Mm. And the basic idea was that it helps us to, to solve people being... It, it helps us to create a circumstance where people's self-interest and the group interest become aligned with one another. Because now, if I'm too selfish and too much of a jerk to everyone else, now I run the risk that eventually I just get kicked out. So I lose all the benefits of being in a society, the, the, the military protection of others, the cooperation and division of labor that I could get, uh, the assistance of a government if there's a government, all of those things. And so when I'm confronted with one of those situations where it's like I could do something that benefits me but harms everybody else, now I just don't have to think about this one little circumstance, whether it's good or bad. I have to think about, well, but is it worth doing if I run the risk of being excluded from society entirely, right? And so these kinds of rules of creating uh, uh, 
uh, private clubs of a, of a form, basically, are, are a longstanding solution to uh, forcing cooperation. And, and, and we, in a certain sense, do the same thing today, right? If you act in certain kinds of selfish ways that hurt other people, you go to jail, right? So if you steal something from somebody or you engage in insider trading or whatever, if you do something that's bad, we say, we don't like throw you out in the way the ancient Greece, Greeks would just like throw you into the woods, but but we don't let you get the benefits of participating in society anymore. And so this is one of the tricks that people use to try and mold people's self-interest so that they no longer have an incentive to act in ways that hurt society. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So another personal experience, I'd love to get some thoughts on this. So I've been involved in men's groups very consistently since I was like 21-ish and kind of like we have, there's standards. It's like you show mm -hmm. up every week mm -hmm. unless there are extenuating circumstances like you're sick or you're out of town, but you show up, um, you know, you show up on time and it's like if you if you continue not to show up and, you know, you're not contributing or, mm -hmm. you know, not even showing up, then you get three strikes and you're okay. out. Mm -hmm. So that's based on what you said, that that allows there to be more of a self-interest to group interest alignment. Mm -hmm. What happens when the rules become more lax mm -hmm. and the, mm -hmm. the standards aren't upheld? Mm -hmm. From your perspective, what happens to, I guess, the integrity of the group or what happens to that group structure? Does it is there a bigger gap that happens or yeah exactly and so you know that that's a great example of a rule that sort of lives in between very draconian rules you know your your group could have had the rule you're late once you're out <laughs> right one strike and you're out right uh or it could have had very lax rules like well you know if you're late every time for six years then we'll kick you out or something you know um and and the thing the reason that you know you want it why would you want one versus the other well on the draconian side, the great thing about the draconian rule is that it it enforces conduct, right? If we say, if you're late even once, we're definitely kicking you out. And so as a result, everybody has a really strong incentive to try and be on time. Except, it we all know there are always circumstances that are beyond our control. You know, you're, you're perfectly on time, but you get in a car accident on the way. Or you get a flat tire or whatever. And so very draconian rules can actually backfire because then people won't even try and follow them because they know that they're going to end up breaking it through no fault of their own. Mm -hmm. And so you end up creating a circumstance where nobody even tries and nobody even bothers, right? So if you create a, a standard that's unattainable and then you say, if you don't achieve this standard, we'll punish you, then people will just say, well, to hell with it. I don't want to do that, right? Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you create standards that are too lax, well, now you now you let people start to game it. People can say, well, it's fine. I can be late today because I've got a 800 strikes still. And so then the rules, if it, people can start acting in selfish ways that harm the group, and they know that they can get away with it. They can game it and figure out exactly how often they can be late or whatever. So it's going to be different in different circumstances. But finding that balance between rules that are not so draconian that they're worth living up to and that we're trying to live up to, but also aren't so lax that you create a circumstance where everybody sort of feels free to just flout them and, and, and not follow them. That's mm -hmm. the, the balance. And, I, you know, depends on the circumstances of the individual group, whether three strikes is the right number. I mean, it, you know, because of baseball, somehow that's everyone thinks that must be the right number. But, uh, but uh, you know, but, but figuring out, like, what's that right balance. And there's actually a, this is one of those things where, boy, if you want to nerd out on the math, there's, there's a ton that shows 
you know, given certain assumptions about how often people make mistakes and all of that, exactly how what how many strikes basically do you want to do you want to have? And there's a whole theory theory behind exactly these kinds of questions. Do you have a number that I could take back to the group and say we're changing from three to five? Or? Three to five. Or, I mean, the big question. The big question basically is how often do you think a person who's acting in good faith would end up making the mistake, right? And so, you know, if you think about it, you know, think about like how often do you get a flat tire? How often do you end up in a car accident or whatever it is given the circumstance? And say, okay, on average, maybe you'll be late once a year or something along those lines. You don't want to put the, then say it's one strike. The problem of putting of putting it right at the average is every once in a while, somebody's going to get unlucky and get two flats in a year or whatever. Yeah. So you always want to move it and be a little bit more liberal, you know? So kind of thinking about like, what, what would you expect the average person who's acting in good faith to do and then give them some leeway? So if mm-hmm. it's, you know, if it's, if it's one flat tire a year, three strikes a year might be a pretty good rule to follow. Um, uh, if it's two flat tires uh, a year, then maybe something more like four or six or something like that. But trying always, you know, never create a rule that's right at that average because just like in poker, you can end up uh, getting unlucky. Yeah. And it just seems from witnessing my own behavior in these environments and other people's behavior, it, it seems almost like human nature to push against those boundaries and make yeah. excuses for ourselves. And not <laughs> wanna, you know, unless there are yeah. clear directives, it's yeah, like, yeah. what, why did it, I guess, where does that come from? Why do we want to do that? Do you know? That's a really interesting question. I mean, one of the things that my colleagues here at uh, Carnegie Mellon, Linda Babcock and George Lowenstein have studied is situations where we tend to be biased in favor of ourselves. So we tend to look at a circumstance and think that we're unusual or special in a certain way because we know ourselves and we think of ourselves as being, you know, good people overall. And so if something goes wrong, we tend to focus on the ways in which it was outside of our control. And of course, sometimes that's true, right? Sometimes bad things happen that are outside of our control. But we also tend to minimize the ways in which we do have control over it. So, you know, I'm a professor. I see this a lot with my students. They'll come to me and they'll say, you know, I missed six classes during the semester, but I was sick, you know, for two of them. And I'll say, well, yeah, okay, you were sick for two of them, but what about the other four? <laughs> right? And, and they're like, okay, yeah, I, was, I just overslept or whatever, you know? And so that's one of those situations where we tend to focus on the things that put ourselves in a good light because we like ourselves. And so we have this narrative about ourselves as good people. And so we tend to focus on the ways that, you know, that, that, we, that we do things wrong. This is part of the reason, or t- we tend to focus on not on the ways that we've done things wrong. This is part of the reason why creating these rules can be really helpful, because those self-serving biases pr- provide us an opportunity to act in selfish ways, but that we don't always think of as selfish. So if I ask you, like, are you a selfish person? Most people are going to say no, right? And if it, and and it's true, actually. I think lots of pe- people aren't selfish in lots of really important ways, but they also don't always see the ways in which they are selfish. What a rule like that forces you to confront is now, like, wait a minute, if I want to argue that I get an exception to the rule, I have to justify to somebody else not just why I was late one time, but rather why I was late three times and why all three times weren't my fault or something mm-hmm. like that. 
yeah. it's never my fault. Never my fault, right? (laughs) I mean, look, I this is one of those things. Whenever I teach these things, I always lead with stories about where I do it to myself because I think, Mm -hmm. look, you know, we should try and overcome these biases. We should think about them, but also they're very human, and so it's not like uh, it's not like I'm perfect. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Far from it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. (laughs) Same. So, as what's the the difference between a finite game and an infinite game oh good yeah this is one of those things that game theorists like to use weirdly infinite can sometimes be mathematically easier which sounds almost like a paradox but it's nobody cares why but it turns out that it's why (laughs) um there are a couple of ways that games can be infinite and one of the classic ones is to think about playing a game with the same person over and over and over an infinite number of times so um you know nobody actually wants to play tic-tac-toe an infinite number of times or something like that but the idea is that it's a nice way to uh think about relationships that can continue over time Right. So it while it's true, I'm never going to play an infinite game because I won't live forever. Um, it's it's also the case that for any given day, I I have reason to think that probably there'll be a tomorrow and that we'll play again tomorrow. And so, um, you know, if of course, someday I'll retire, but that's a long ways off and I don't even quite know when it's going to be. And so every day I come to work, I know that whatever games I'm playing with my with my colleagues today, I'll probably play with them tomorrow. And so infinite games are kind of like a, a simplification or or an easy way to think about that. Like, well, just imagine that the game goes on forever and think about how you'll play today and how that will influence tomorrow. So it's, of course, a little imperfect, but it turns out to, to be a very useful um uh, sort of cartoon way of thinking about how we do things mm. and how did because i imagine philosophy influenced you thinking about infinite and finite games quite a bit you know yeah it's yeah part yeah. of like if you think of stoicism it's like yeah <laughs> nothing's infinite everything's yeah. finite so the, yep. could you expand on that maybe absolutely yeah so that's why that's why i described it the way i did because it's mm. like it's an it's it's what we call an idealization so what that means is it, it's 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 taking the real world and making a little bit of a kind of false or untrue assumption, but that actually helps us to think about it. And it's something we do all the time, right? I never understand another person, especially somebody who I don't know very well, in the full detail of their lives. But rather, I kind of sketch, oh, yeah, they're the... the this person is a is a salesperson, so that must be they're this kind of person, right? Of course, they're way more complex than that. But if I'm just buying something from them, that idealized version of them is something that I can that I can interact with. There's a story by the uh, famous author uh, Borges. Uh, where he sort of makes fun of a king who wants a full-scale map of the country. So that is literally a map that is exactly as big as the country. And it's like, that's useless, right? What, what, what could you possibly do? And, and that's, that's an analogy that I like to use here. It's like, you always have to simplify. Maps simplify. Google Maps simplifies or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about infinite games, it's just, the, you know, the reality is I have to think about, well, how likely is it that I'm going to live until tomorrow? And how likely is it that I won't quit my job before tomorrow? And that my colleague w- won't, won't get hit by a bus or won't quit their job? Da, 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 da. Ugh, that's just such a pain. And it's not really worth the trouble. So I'll just say, I'm going to treat this like it's going to go on forever. And that's a simplification. And so you're exactly right. I'm with the Stoics here. Nothing's infinite. Everything's finite. But... Uh, we can treat it like it's infinite because that just makes our reasoning simpler. It means that I, I'll treat it like it'll go on forever. And then maybe I'll worry about the details when I'm 90 and know that it won't. You mm. know. Yeah, it's a, it's pretty wild Like if, you know, to riff on the stoicism thing of like realizing that you're a speck 
yeah. in infinity. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, it's yeah. like it, there's this concept of infinity that makes you realize how small you are. So it's like yeah. those two things opposing each other, like you said. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, one thing one thing that's always really tricky here is like infinity as a mathematical concept is bigger and more confusing than you could ever possibly imagine you know and so something can be finite but big you know and 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 i think that's you know you, uh, you know we don't know i guess the universe could be infinite i think physicists think it's probably finite but uh but it's really 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 big and so treating it like it's infinite especially when you know thinking about yourself as your relationship to the universe is pretty close to a bit to an infinite even though like technically speaking and you know it's really finite but just 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 gazillions and gazillions of times bigger than you can imagine yeah so. well how has that influenced how you live your life kind of like you know realizing how big things are yeah i mean i think it's i think you know i'm 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 of the opinion that i think it's important to both remember how small one is but also remember how important one is in a in, in a very small microcosm, you know, mm. I can on, only influence the world in a very small way, you know, but in that small way that I can, I can definitely do better and worse things and, and affect the world in better and worse ways. And so I always try to, you know, I, it's hard to maintain both thoughts at the same time, but to maintain both thoughts at the same time, like at the end of the day, the world is going to be that much different based on me being here. But I also have the choice between whether it's going to be that much better or that much worse. And so, you know, that's that's yeah, the way well. I sort of think about it. Would you have any suggestions for someone who's, you know, like myself, just exploring this and go, okay, how do I use this in my life? Like what's maybe a, an initial lens of game theory that yeah. I can put over the way I see the world so then I can go and, you know, maybe influence my environment? Absolutely. The first thing I always recommend to people is to start thinking like a game theorist. And so rather than taking a single result or a single game or a single story and trying to do something with it, just think about your social world in the way that a game theorist would. A game theorist always breaks down any kind of social interaction into three parts. Who are the players? And what that means is who are the relevant people? Who are the people who have actions that they could take that might influence this 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 circumstance so say you're going to buy a car from a car dealer obviously two of the relevant players are you the buyer and the person the salesperson that you're interacting with probably also a supervisor or some manager who also maybe has to sign off on the deal so there might be two or three players uh, and you can sort of think about it as a game between just those three people, right? Of course, in theory, there are other people that, that care, but, but you sort of, okay, these are the people who really have decisions to make and whose decisions might influence how, what the outcome is going to be. All right, that's step one. Who are the players? Step two, what are their strategies or what options do they have available to them, right? So um, I can offer to pay a lot of money in theory for a car, uh, but obviously, I can't pay more money than I have, right? Or I can't offer to pay more than I could get a loan for or something like that. So my strategies are constrained by how much money I have. So there are certain things that I might do which aren't an option to me, right? Um, the the salesperson can't, despite what they might occasionally say, sell it to you at a loss, <laughs> right? That's just not something that is going to be a possibility for them uh, because they're in business, right? And so there's some, you may not know what it is, but there's some floor below which they just will not sell you the car below that because it's, it, 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 just, it would be cheaper for them to keep the car. And so going through that, what are the strategies of the various players? Then, and so that's step two. And step three, which is the hardest one, but also the most critical one, is think about what do people want out of the interaction? 
the salesperson, the car salesperson thing is usually, I use that because it's simpler. Because in the in this situation, mostly what people want is financial, right? I want to get a new car, but for the cheapest I possibly can. The salesperson wants to sell me the car, but would like to sell it for the most they possibly can. But there are already some wrinkles, right? It's not just that I want to buy a car, but also I want it to be treated with respect. And I might be willing to pay a little bit more if I feel like I'm being treated honestly or kindly or with respect. And presumably the same thing is true of the salesperson, right? Salesperson, if I'm a real pain in the ass, might be like, I'd rather just not deal with this person. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give them a discount because they're a jerk. Salesperson might also be interested in things like repeat business, so you might be able to use that to your advantage or something like that. But sitting and thinking through what people want, and the reason I say this is the hardest part is because it's so easy to stop at the surface, right? It's so easy to say in the sales interaction, yeah, they just want to make the most they can, and I want to get it for the cheapest I can, end of story. And it's true, that's a big part of it, but that's not the end of story because I definitely have chosen not to buy from somebody and paid more by going to a different business because they're nice to me uh, rather than somebody who's a jerk. And so it, where a lot of people make mistakes at this step especially is by stopping at that surface level and not thinking deeper about what, what are all the motivations that a person has, not just the financial or the, you know, um, uh, you know, surf obvious uh, the obvious ones. They don't think about the the details. Yeah, well, that's amazing. I, I, do you have any ways that you have anchored this in your life? Because mm. sometimes I find like it's the practice and repeating of taking the time to sit and go, okay, one, two, three, before yeah. I go into an interaction, the preparation that actually ingrains it in my life versus being like, okay, cool, I wrote one, two, three, and then I'll yeah. go and just do the same thing for the rest of my life. Yeah. That's I do this all the time, especially at work when I'm going to interact with a colleague where I know there's going to be a little bit of conflict, where I know they want one thing and I want something something else. And, you know, this is a, a circumstance where if they're not they're like, my, oh, no, here comes the game theory guy. Yeah, exactly. Right. They don't. Yeah, sometimes they don't let me come into the meetings because of this. But, well, maybe that's a win for me, too. So <laughs> but, uh, you know, you know, this is a situation where if they're not, you know, especially at a university, there is it's a little less structured that at a lot of corporations. Like there are a lot of people that I have to, like, get on board with something and I'm not their boss and they're not my boss. And so it's much more almost democratic mm -hmm. uh, in a certain respect. Mm -hmm. And so I have to go into this and I think, okay, well, I want this thing and they want something else. It looks like we're going to have a conflict. Let me figure out what are they interested in? Why is it that they want the thing that they want? And that can sometimes be really hard. I mean, you can say what they want. Like, okay, my colleague wants, uh, you know, to us to admit more graduate students to work with them. And I want to admit more graduate students to work with me, but we've got a budget, so we can't, you know. But uh, that sounds too simple. Now I have to say, well, why do they want graduate students to work with them? What's the thing that they're looking for? What What is motivating them? And I have to think about that. And this is one of the things that professional negotiators, you know, they may not necessarily always study game theory, but they learn it on the job. The critical thing is to is to not stop at the first line demands, but say, why is it you want that? What is it about that that gives you value? Because that's where you can start to find those win-win solutions by figuring out what it is that motivates people. And so that's, uh, you know, I, I do try, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I've done it so much, I'm not necessarily doing like step one, step two, step three anymore, but I always try to go in thinking about like, okay, what what is this? And then when people behave in ways that seem inconsistent to me, the first thing I do is stop and say, wait, was I wrong? Are they motivated by something mm -hmm. else? And I think that's also really important is to have that that constantly redoing 
this process because mm. you can be wrong and and then you can like i said garbage in garbage out with game theory you know you can you can you can really screw things up and so stop and be like wait maybe i've got them wrong maybe you know maybe this car salesman is about to quit his job and so he doesn't care about money right <laughs> he just wants to 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 be done with me so that he can you know retire or whatever yeah. you know yeah um, do, do you have a couple of questions that you ask in those moments because those can be tough moments when you're kind of going in with a theory or an idea and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, it's completely, you know, like my yeah. like everyone, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Yes, right? exactly. Like- exactly. And, and I always try to, you know, one thing that I think is just really, really critical is, and I, boy, I'm imperfect at this, let me tell you, but it's to have that emotional like detachment so that you can like, when you're in the moment, it's very easy to be like convinced of your own theory and convinced of the irrationality of the other person. Um, it's very easy to be like that person's behaving like an idiot. And look, sometimes people are idiots. I mean, I'm not going to tell you they're not, but people are idiots less often than you think. And so I always try and stop myself. Like when my first call is like that person's an idiot or that person's irrational or that person's stupid is to stop and go, wait, is it that they're really stupid or is it that I don't understand what it is they're going for? And they may not even understand themselves, but you know that. So when I, whenever I start to say that person's being irrational, I always try to stop myself and say, wait, it might be, that's a real possibility, but don't make it your first answer. Make sure that you're right about everything else before you decide that that's the mm. explanation. And in that moment, do you have any kind of back pocket questions you ask to get clarity around that? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that I always try and do is I try and think, what could they be interested in that would make sense of their behavior? So philosophers call this the principle of charity. Mm -hmm. So the idea is, and not charity like as in giving money, but like as being a charitable thinker or something like that. Mm -hmm. So the idea is stop and say, okay, I've just watched this person like refuse a bunch of deals or do a bunch of things or whatever. And I, and I say, boy, it sure looks like they're behaving irrationally. Let me stop and say, what could they want that would make sense of what they did? So how can I like science fiction-y sort of like, what could be going on here? And then oftentimes I'll come up with more than one option. So like, well, maybe they, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, maybe it's this other thing. And then, but once I have a set, then I can start doing experiments. If they're the kind of person that's interested in communicating with me and is going to be honest with me, I can say, hey, wait, it sounds like maybe you're interested in this. Is it this? Or it sounds like you're interested in a or yeah. B, if they're sometimes they're not, they don't want to tell you, or they're they're just too angry to to have that conversation or something. And then in those situations, you can do little experiments, right? You can say, well, if what they really want is this, if I make this offer to them, they'll take it. And 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 so you can sort of you know test the waters a little bit by mm-hmm. saying, well, you know, could I give you this? You know, so like, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you're probably already familiar with this. Somebody who has background in sales like you will know these things about like, well, maybe you could say, you know, well, hey, do you want this thing? Would would you be interested in, you know, this 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 deal, this contract, this particular kind of car or something like that? And if the person goes, well, yeah, I might be. Ah, now you know something. Now you know whether they care about, you know, that kind of a feature of the thing you're selling and then if they go oh no i don't i'm not interested now oh you've got something figured out you know ah that's they're not interested in that that strategy that you might use in sales you can use in everything because you can figure out when you know 
you know, when your partner's mad at you about something and you're not sure why, you can start to try and figure out, well, wait, what's the thing that they're interested in? What's the, you know, is, is it that they, they feel like they've been treated badly by me? Is it that they just want a day off and they want me to take over the household chores or what is it, you know? And, and, and they may not know themselves always, but these little experiments can sometimes help you to figure it out. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's the thing that changed a lot for me is actually having structure. Mm-hmm. And realizing that conversation has structure yeah. and a process, and it allows you to instead of sitting in this big mass of confusion and guessing, <laughs> you're yep. kind of you're able to shave off the edges. Yeah, and, you know, I love that line where you're like, oh, it's you can kind of label it in a way. Oh, it sounds like blah. Yeah, and being okay with them saying no. Yeah, because you don't need a yes. It just yep. what that does is it just shaves it off. Like you said, experimenting, or you just keep going via negativa to get oh, to. Yeah the answer that maybe they don't even know how to articulate. Yeah. And yeah. and that's, I think, super important. You know, I mean, the times like, for instance, I've dealt with customer service people where something goes wrong, like mm-hmm. a flight gets canceled or the, the, the product breaks or something like that. Delta. You know, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> right, you call them on the phone and the good people, the people who are really well-trained and I think are really good at their job, the first thing they start to do is they start to say, okay, what is it about this circumstance that's bad? Is mm-hmm. it that you're mad because you're going to miss a meeting? Okay, well, if that's the problem, let's figure out how we can get you to your meeting as fast as possible. Is it you're you're mad because your bag is going to get separated from you because you need something in your bag? Well, how can we get you the thing that you would need, like give you a free toothbrush or, or something like that? And I mean, they face all sorts of crazy constraints and they can't always do it. But but good ones are start you know will start to ask those questions like, okay, what's the what's the thing that you're mad about, and how can I get to that thing that you're mad about? and solve that problem rather than try and you know solve all problems all at once which they can't possibly do figure out is this the kind of person that's mad because of a meeting are they mad mm-hmm. because they feel mistreated are they mad because um, they got separated from their from from their toothbrush are they mad because they don't have a place to stay and figure out how, can i address the thing that they're mad about and mm-hmm. that's very much game theory thinking and one of the things that I think is great about game theory is it shows that like this thing that works in customer service or sales or something is not just a sales strategy or a customer service strategy, but it's a strategy that works for everything. And it's a way of thinking mm. that works for everything. Yeah, I'm really loving how you're explaining this. And I think this beautiful merge, like you said, of philosophy and, and game theory of, it's like we're taking these concepts and structures of game theory and then being like, okay, and then there's people which are messy and they have, they're not always rational. And all of a sudden they'll make an, they'll explode about something. And it's like, how do you have these structures that help you to kind of navigate this to the best possible outcome? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Cool. So let's, let's dive into that because you wrote this, you know, book about, about parenting, the game theorist guide to parenting. And I'd love to, Maybe you could just give a little bit of summary of, of the book, and then I'll ask some questions after that. Yeah, so the book is the book is I think lighthearted. We try to make it approachable because game theory can be kind of intimidating, as can parenting for that matter. <laughs> and um, but the idea is to try and use some of the lessons from game theory to try and think about common situations that parents and children, or even parents of children, but in, interacting with with you know co-parents, partners, those sorts of things, um, might be confronting. So each chapter is sort of built around a vignette, either from uh, my co-author who who has uh, uh, kids. I don't have kids, as it turns out. So it, the vignettes are all from my childhood and the ways in which I was a pain to my parents. Um, vignettes of those sorts of things, like kid is lying. 
What can you do about that? Or two siblings are fighting over a toy. What can you do about that? Or there's a disagreement about where the family is going to go on vacation. What can you do about that? So sort of starting with these vignettes and then describing a little bit of how would a game theorist approach this problem? What is the game theory solutions that or what is it the game theory suggests one should do in that situation? And how can it work for a parent? And one of the things that, you know, to connect with what I was just saying that I love about the book is even though I'm not a parent, as soon as my co-author started bringing parenting problems to me, I was like, oh, yeah. I know that, even though I haven't dealt with it with a kid, I've dealt with it with. In, I've dealt with an analogous situation. The, 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 I can see those connections that maybe he couldn't see, and so I could bring a bit of game theory to it. And that's how we sort of wrote the book: is he would he would give me a problem, I would see if there was some relevant game theory, and then we'd put a chapter together that was you know sort of his expertise on parenting and my expertise on on game theory. How could our dialogue with one another uh, 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 help him be a better parent? But also how can the parenting situation help us think about our lives in general more like the way a game theorist does. What did you learn about dealing with adults by writing a book geared towards parents and children? <laughs> One thing that surprised me is kids are way smarter than I think they often are given credit for. Like the question that everybody asked, always asked me is like, well, game theory assumes that everybody's behaving rationally and kids don't behave rationally. And then when I would start to talk to uh, Paul Rayburn, my, my co-author, he'd be like, well, yeah, I mean, they don't behave rationally in some respects, but also they, they're not worried about much. So if they want something out of you, they're spending 100% of their mental energy trying to figure out how to get that. And so even though they may be not quite as smart as adults are because their brains are still developing and they're still learning – 100% of a kid's brain working on a problem versus, you know, the 4% of a of a time their parent has to dedicate to it. Kids are oftentimes outsmarting parents. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, that's one of those things that it really made me think like, yeah, you know, I shouldn't presume that other people are dumb or irrational or something like that because even a 5-year-old can outsmart their parents like just assuming that I that somebody else is not smart enough to outsmart me is probably the wrong way to think about it. So I don't know. That's one of the things that I took away from uh, from working on this was that you know like people, especially if they have real strong incentives, can be really smart even if even if you know they're maybe not super well educated or they're you know like with kids their brains haven't fully developed. Uh, and so don't always presume that you can outsmart somebody just because mm -hmm. you think you're smarter than them. Yeah, know? definitely. There was a part in the book that I really loved, which was about let's when you have two siblings. So I had a younger mm. brother and let's say you get a video game console and there's one controller. Yeah. Who gets it first? Yeah. And what is fair? Could you expand on that? And yeah. Figure that out? This is a really fairness is one of these really tricky problems. And in fact, that exact example uh, connects with the story of Bakken Stravinsky that we talked about earlier. So now there's a good here being the first person to play the game. The problem is it's not a good that you can cut in half, right? You can't do Solomon's baby solution and cut the video game machine in half and give each kid half of it, right? So you have to figure out how do you allocate this in a way that feels fair, even though you know at the end of the day there's always going to be a winner and a loser. So the first and obvious one is maybe you flip a coin. And, and that feels fair in the beginning, but then once the coin comes out, doesn't feel fair anymore because somebody wins and somebody loses, right? And so one of the ways that we talk about this, which is one of these like, you know, only an economist could think of this solution is think about it like an auction. 
right? You have this good that 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 you're selling in a certain sense to one of the kids. So now you ask them, well, what what would you be willing to pay? Now with kids, of course, I don't think you should use money necessarily for this because you know kids' concept of money is still a little weird. It's still developing, but you can use other things like, well, okay, you know, uh, Timmy, would you be willing to do a chore, one of Johnny's chores in order to be able to play first and then maybe he says yes I'll do one okay well now Johnny would you be willing to do two of Timmy's chores in order to get first right and you go back and forth and you go back and forth and then eventually you end up with a situation where the person who wants it more is willing to pay more in order to get it and the other one says oh thank god like I'm not getting to play the video game first, but also I'm not going to have to do 17 chores. And so then that can make it feel more fair because you're giving it to the person in a sense who wants it more, but you're charging them a fee. And if you, you know, if you make that fee benefit the other one, so like Timmy is doing Johnny's chores, well, now the loser feels great about it because the loser is like, perfect, now I'm getting out of chores. So he wins the video game and I win getting out of chores. And so that's a way that you can take what feels like a a win-loss kind of zero-sum situation and you can turn it into a win-win situation by introducing an extra dimension of things that that people can feel good about. Amazing. Yeah, it's actually like without knowing this concept, it's that what you're talking about has been one of the most beneficial things in my relationship with my partner is that when we somehow organically ended up there of like if i want to do something and she doesn't like we're talking about where we're living right now yeah it's like i don't like living in cities i hate it right yeah yeah. very much like (laughs) from the country and like whereas we're living like downtown medellin right now yeah and it's like there's like four million people here i'm like (laughs) but it's like we we negotiated around okay well like we lived in the middle of nicaragua for the last nine months in the middle of nowhere, like the power's yeah, cutting out yeah. all the time, internet's cutting out. And so it was like, okay, I'm going to do this and then we'll do that. And yep. then after this, and it's like kind of mapping out this timeline of our mm-hmm. lives. It And it also gave us more certainty about what we're doing in the yeah. future yeah, and yeah. what is fair to the other person. And now I'm here going, okay, cool. I can deal with this instead of pulling my hair out for nine months and being like, yep. I hate it. It's because there's a, there's a payoff. And There's also a for Bianca. Is like- exactly, exactly. And so you have that experience of like, here's this other thing. One of the, another thing that we talk about in the book, which which so- sounds like maybe that is what the two of you did, mm-hmm. is a strategy that's super familiar to parents from like food, but they don't realize how general it is. The strategy called "I cut, you pick." So this is one of those situations where like if you have like a a piece of cake that you want two kids to share, you have one of them cut it in half, and then the other one gets to choose which piece they want. That creates an incentive for the first one to cut it in, in, into equal-sized or fair amounts because they know if one piece is much bigger than the other one, well, guess what? The other guy's going to pick the bigger piece, right? So you can do that with everything, though. So, like, for instance, in your example, it sounds like you've sort of done that with time, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, you know, now we've got to decide we're going to live – in you know one place for so many months and somewhere else for so many months or for so many years and so many years so we made that agreement somebody cut time you know first five years here second five years here and then somebody else gets to choose okay well which which one do i want do i want to live in the city first and then the country second or the country first and the city second or something like that or if it's not that you know you say well maybe 
I get to choose whether it's a city or a rural area, and you get to choose which city or which rural area it is, or something like that. So there are variations on on this theme, but this idea of asking one person to to create two options and then asking the other person to choose which one creates really strong incentives for the first person to come up with two fair options because they always know that if that one of them's better and the other one's worse, that the other one's going to choose the, the better one. Wow, I love that. Love that. I wrote it down, highlighted it in green. Put a big <laughs> I cut, you pick. That's great. I cut, you pick. It's a great That's strategy. Fantastic. And and there's a, one of these things like the the nerd out math you know there's a ton of math that shows that it's like optimal in all of these different cool ways and that it's really perfect to do a lot of things it's a, it but it only works for two people that's the tricky mm. thing once you get three there are versions of I cut you pick but they get really complicated so mm. but with two people they're perfect it's absolutely perfect perfect okay we're gonna bring the philosophy into something that you were talking about here and fate the coin toss mm. and thinking about like our lack of religion or faith in mm. gods and all that sort of stuff because i imagine we'll use the same time period as when we we're talking about the ancient greeks if there was a video game back there or you someone got a you know, smooth rock <laughs> like flipping the coin and it the faith that i had in it, that it was up to the gods mm-hmm. would have i probably would have felt better about it because you didn't yeah. curse the gods for life yeah. you were like it's kind of how it is yeah could you yeah, expand yeah. on that maybe like the mindset difference then versus today and yeah maybe the benefits of having faith yeah i mean it's really a, a complicated randomness is one of these really complicated ideas because it's one of those things that our brains are just not good at you know we're not good about thinking about randomness one of the favorite stories that i like to tell is if you ask somebody write down uh what seems like a random sequence of like heads and tails of a coin toss what they'll actually write down is not very random. It will actually switch too often. So it won't have long runs. It'll be like heads, tails, heads, tails, maybe heads, heads, tails, tails, something like that. Whereas real coin tosses, you might get five heads in a row. So we're really bad about thinking about randomness. And we're really prone to find patterns where they don't exist. And so that's exactly why, like, the ancient Greeks thought, like, all of this is determined by the gods, because they started to think they were finding patterns, like, oh, you know, any time that I'm mean to somebody else, then my crops get extra bugs. And so that must mean that there's some god that's punishing me, punishing me for it. And look, I mean, maybe there is. I don't, I'm not here to, to, <laughs> to shit on anyone's religion. But the, but we, we're really good at finding patterns, even where they aren't there. Go to the casino and you'll find a million people who are like, oh yeah, 17 always comes up after you see 18 three times before or whatever. Um, that's just how our brains are wired. And so one of the things that I think is one has to be really careful about, I think, is it can it can feel good to find those patterns. Just like you say, like it does feel, it's a lot, it feels a lot better when you know you lose something because of some randomness and you say, well, it was up to the gods. The gods made the decision. That makes you feel better. But also, sometimes attributing those patterns, I think, can be really destructive because then you start to think that, like, well, if I just bring a rabbit's foot with me to the casino, then I'll win. And probably that there's – my guess is that there's no connection between the rabbit's foot. It's my professional opinion as a game theorist. Um, and so, you know, that's one of those things where I think that we always have to be careful about attributing too much structure to randomness because it can really mislead us. On the other hand, I mean, it can be fun. I mean, you know, I, I know all this stuff and yet still I joke around about, you know, like, well, it's, you know, it's, it, I'm due to win or it's, you know, I'm, I'm running hot today or things like that. But I always try to keep in the back 
back of my mind that it's sort of a fun thing I'm doing and not not something that's that's real and out there in the world. Now, I mean, that said, of course, sometimes things that seem random really aren't random. So it's it's not like you know, it's not like you can always say, oh, that's just randomness. But I think I think I think if I had to guess, we tend to assume that there's structure when there isn't way more often than the other way. When you're looking back on your own life, what, how has understanding game theory benefited the direction of your life? It's it's really helped me a lot in these kinds of interpersonal interactions. So negotiations, both the kind of formal negotiations, like when I negotiated the con- my most recent contract for my job, but also informal negotiations. Like you said, like interacting with, with, with my wife all the time where, you know, I'm thinking through, and sometimes to my own detriment, sometimes I get to stop being the game theorist, but, but you know, but, you know, thinking th- those those ways through. And especially, I think the thing that really shaped me as I started to learn this is to stop thinking about things in so much win-loss, zero-sum ways. Because that really was, I think I was sort of more disposed to thinking of that way when I was a younger person, like I need to win and, and, and they need to lose kind of thing. And when I started studying game theory and started realizing how many things that game theorists used to think were zero sum, but now they don't think are zero sum. That just started to think to myself like, oh, wait, there's so many more opportunities out in the world for win-win solutions for things that can benefit both people. I needed to stop thinking in that in that way. And I, so I think that maybe if I had to say one thing, re- recognizing that even things that initially feel like they might be zero sum are not zero sum, maybe is the thing that's made the biggest difference for me. Mm, cool. And if you're looking back over the last 12 months, what's something that's happened or you've done or you've experienced that you're really proud of? Oh, man. <laughs> it's been a busy... <laughs> I've, I'm writing this book. It's more an academic book, but it's about how we how we learn in uh, social groups, and that's something I'm really proud. I, I just read through the full draft of it, and I was like, oh, man, this is better than I had remembered it, or at least not as bad as I feared it would be. <laughs> so that's that's something I'm really proud of. I think that that's something that's, that's really good. The other thing is we're starting this new thing here at Carnegie Mellon called the Institute for Complex Social Dynamics, and that was something that, that I negotiated for. And so that's maybe a real win for game theory is that that was a case where I needed to talk to the, you know, the dean of the college who's sort of, you know, my boss's boss, and I needed to convince him to invest money in this. And uh, and so I did exactly what I described. I sat down and said, what are his interests and what are the ways that I can pitch him this idea that will coincide with what he wants? You know, we both want the university to do well, but he's always got somebody in his ear asking for money. And so I've got to be like, what is it? How does this fit his interests more than a lot of the other things that he's thinking about? And so I sat down and made those lists and 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 it worked. You know, we got we got a good amount of money and, and we're just starting that 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 new institute and um you know, it was. I really do think it was because I sat and carefully thought about what are his interests and how is it that I can make this fit his interests. Mm. Yeah. Do you mind like sharing a little bit about how much time that took? That process of like actually sitting down and thinking it because oh I yeah, think people underestimate it. Underestimate oh, for sure. Yeah, because because you know my I, I did exactly the thing that I'm telling everyone not to do. Like my first thought was like, well, this is a good idea. It's good for the institution. It'll make us better. And he wants what's good for the institution, so I'll just tell him why it's good for the institution. I'm going to the office right now. <laughs> right now. Yeah, I was like ready to go, and then thankfully, you know, his calendar was full, and so I didn't have a meeting for a couple of weeks, and so I, you know, uh, you know, just wrote down. My, my notes for my pitch to myself and then I was like a couple days later I'm like let me look back at that and then I was like wait a minute 
you know, I'll bet he gets a lot of those. And I'll bet I'm not the only one giving him the same kind of pitch. So then I had to start thinking about, okay, wait a minute. What's, what are his interests? More specifically than he wants the institution to do well, what, in what ways does he want it to do well? And in what ways might it be failing to do well that this thing could fix? So how is, you know, where's the niche that this can fit in his mind about how he thinks about it? I was lucky because I actually know the dean pretty well. He was promoted from being my immediate boss to being my boss's boss. So he and I've had a lot of interactions with him. And so I started to think about like, oh, you know, how does he think about the institution? How is it, what is it that he wants for it? And how can this, how can this be something that fills a gap for him? And so that was the first layer. But then that even wasn't that good. And so thankfully, I, you know, another couple of days went by and I thought about it. So time is really valuable. And at least for me, maybe different people are different, but for me, always like writing something down, setting it aside, going away, coming back with fresh eyes, and and then forcing myself to be like, is this really the right dis- thought description of, of what his interests are? That's what really helps me. So the more lead time I have, uh, the better. And also the better that I know a person. As I said, it helped that I knew knew this person really, really well, because I, I knew what his interests were way more than if he was a stranger. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I find that the hardest part is, I don't know why, I have a lot of resistance around that. I'll put it, I'll write down my first draft or whatever. And then I'm like, go good enough. I'll figure yeah. the rest out you know, <laughs> on the spot. And it's the difference is yeah. more than two X yeah, of oh, returning. Yeah. It's a completely, it's oh, like a sure. five, 10 X result when yeah. I revisit it and do that extra level of prep is, is wild. No, it's, it's so, and I, this is something that I say to, you know, people, people in college all the time. I'm like, don't turn in your first draft of a paper or don't turn in your first draft of a homework assignment or something like that. Because if you can give yourself, if you can get yourself to forget what you wrote and come back to it, it's, it's like two people looked at it, you know? And so it's just, you know, it's so valuable to do something, set it aside, give yourself a little breathing room and then come back to it. If you can, of course not, you can't always do that, but if you can, I, I think that's so valuable in, in everything, not just, I mean, not just game theory. That's like everything. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you already asked this question, but looking forward into, did I say maybe you've already asked this question? <laughs> <laughs> maybe you've already answered this question, but looking forward on the coming 12 months, what are you really excited about? It might be some of the things you mentioned already, but yeah, is there really excited about? yeah, the things the things that I mentioned already: book finishing that book, getting it finished, um, getting the this institute started. Those are the things that I'm super excited about. And you know, we're um, Carnegie Mellon University, where I am, is this really exciting place. It's growing really fast, so we're going to be hiring new people, and we're changing the direction of the department a, a little bit, not a big big change. The philosophy department at Carnegie Mellon. I'm just really excited about that. There are so many young people coming into the institution, and so. I'm I'm just really excited about, you know, I'm, I'm in charge of hiring somebody uh, uh, this year. I'm really, uh, I'm, I've already taken a peek at the applicants, even though it's before the cool. deadline. <laughs> and I just think it's going to be really great. So I'm just very excited, especially to be involved with this organization and trying to get it to, I mean, it's already great, but getting it to be even better. Amazing. Thanks, man. That was an absolute pleasure. Ah, great. Thank you very much for having me. Mm-hmm.